Within the dark world of true crime, there exists hundreds of thousands of unsolved missing persons cases. Many of these cases follow familiar themes, where one or two key pieces of evidence or a confession is all that is standing in the way of a satisfactory conclusion. And then there are the truly strange cases, those that have creepy and disturbing elements to them, leaving those investigating them guessing what could have possibly happened to the person at the center of the mystery. In this episode, we put together a collection of the strangest disappearance cases we have ever come across, telling them in no particular order. In this, the first episode of Season 3 of They Disappeared. Case 1. In Search of the M-Cave. The Disappearance of Kenny Veach. On October 18, 2014, a 47-year-old hiker named Kenny Veach grabbed his video camera and invited the world to join him on his quest to rediscover an unusual cave he had come across on a previous hike in the Nevada desert. Kenny described the strange cave as having an entrance shaped like a capital M, and upon entering it, he had what he called a physical reaction, like a vibration that had passed throughout his entire body. When skeptical YouTubers questioned the existence of the cave, he offered to record and upload a follow-up journey to find it. That video is titled M Cave Hike and was uploaded to YouTube by Kenny under the username SnakeBitMcGee. It begins with Kenny standing in a canyon surrounded by distant mountain peaks. Near him is an abandoned in-ground mine with an old derrick built above it. Here's an excerpt from the beginning of that video, which to date has over two and a half million views. And uh, I'm looking for a cave that I, I found and I didn't have a, I didn't have a sidearm when I was here before and something about that cave just spooked me out of all the caves I've ever gone in. This one just made my body vibrate. The closer I got to it, the crazier my body felt. And I was like, all right, I'm not going to go in there right now, but I'm coming back someday. And I talked to some people on YouTube and I told them, hey, I'm coming out here, you know, because they, they kind of called my hand on it. So I don't know if there's going to be anything to it, but it, it might be interesting. Uh, if I can find it, I got to relocate it. And this is a big mountain range I'm in. And uh, I'm not, I'm on foot, you know, my truck's way out there. There's no roads, there's no trails. It's a pretty rough terrain. So uh, hopefully I'll find it. It's shaped like a big M. It's a big cave that looks just like a gigantic M. And it's about as tall as I am and kind of narrow. And uh, it's stuck on the side of a mountain. Uh, so I hope I can find it again. And if, if I do, I'm, I'm going in there. I'm going to put on my light and take my gun out and walk in there, see if I find anything. We'll see. Next, Kenny pulls his camera off its tripod and pans it around the canyon, showing viewers how remote of an area he is in. At one point, he stands above the in-ground mine and zooms the lens to the very bottom, which appears to be over 50 feet from the surface. Ironically, that mine will become a significant landmark in this case. Um, this is kind of iffy. I'm going to step on this thing. It's very old. But I'll just show you down inside that hole. 
it goes way, way, way down in there. Let me see if I can... That's pretty far. That goes way down in there. If you fell, that'd be it. You'd be a goner. Over the course of the 21-minute video, Kenny stops and starts his recording to narrate his journey. He points out changes in the terrain, filming rocky landmarks. He captures different wildlife, from a bighorn sheep standing on a distant mountain peak to a desert tortoise crawling across the ground. But because Kenny doesn't find the M cave, the video itself is somewhat unremarkable. And without full context, it's difficult to understand why it went viral. The genesis of the M cave search and the Kenny Veach mystery came from a comment Kenny left on a YouTube video titled son of an Area 51 technician. The now-deleted comment posted under Kenny's YouTube username, SnakeBitMcGee, was the first ever mention of the M-Cave. The following is a direct read of that post. That ain't nothing. I'm a long-distance hiker. One time during one of my hikes out by Nellis Air Force Base, I found a hidden cave. The entrance to the cave was shaped like a perfect capital M, I always enter every cave I find. But as I began to enter this particular cave, my whole body began to vibrate. The closer I got to the cave entrance, the worse the vibrating became. And suddenly, I became very scared and hightailed it out of there. That was one of the strangest things that ever happened to me. With the described location of the M cave being near Nellis Air Force Base, in the infamous Area 51. There was overwhelming responses and challenges to Kenny's post, asking him to prove the cave existed by recording and uploading a journey to the cave. But because he didn't find it, many of the initial comments on the MK video were negative, suggesting Kenny was lying about its existence. He was asked to once again venture into the desert, and upload a recording of the follow-up journey to find it. One comment, posted by the username LemmeKillMister, offered the following ominous warning to Kenny. No, do not go back there. If you find that cave entrance, don't go in. If you do, you won't get out. That user has not posted or commented on YouTube since giving Kenny that warning. In a strange twist, Lemmy Kilmister is also the name of the band Motorhead's lead singer, who passed away in December of 2015. Ironically, the cover photo for Motorhead's Ace of Spades album shows the band standing in the desert. On Monday, November 10th, 2014, Kenny Veach once again ventured out into the Mojave Desert in search of the M-Cave. But this time, he wouldn't return. When four days had passed with no word from Kenny, his girlfriend, Sharon Pilgrim, reported him missing. Large-scale air and ground searches in the aftermath of Kenny's disappearance yielded very few clues. His car was found outside the Sheep Mountains, 
And a week later, ground searchers discovered his cell phone outside the entrance of the same abandoned mine he had filmed in the M-Cave hike video. Authorities had the mine thoroughly searched, but no trace of Kenny was found. Despite ongoing searches by volunteers and enthusiasts over the years, no other traces of Kenny have ever been found. It was as if he had placed his cell phone on the ground outside that mine and simply vanished into thin air. On December 10th, one month after Kenny disappeared, Sharon posted a comment on his M-Hike video, informing everyone in the YouTube community that Kenny was missing. Up until then, most of them had been unaware. YouTube user speculation went wild, some suggesting that Kenny may have had a deadly confrontation with desert outlaws, or that he may have incidentally trespassed onto a government installation. Some even theorized that Kenny's M-Cave was a back door of sorts, leading directly onto Area 51. Sharon, however, had a more practical and rational explanation for his disappearance and the few clues that he had left behind. In part, Sharon posted this about Kenny and his disappearance. I had no idea until a friend let me know so many people are wondering what happened and are guessing different things. He has not been found, and I feel he probably will not be found for many, many months, if ever. I want to share what I know and feel about what happened. Kenny absolutely loved hiking in the desert. It was his favorite thing to do. We hiked and camped together all over the Nevada desert. We found many abandoned mining towns and explored many caves and mine shafts. We were always careful, but Kenny was a bit more daring. If you have a love for the desert, you know it is not spooky or scary, but you do have to be careful. I do not think Kenny had an accident. I believe he committed suicide. According to Sharon, Kenny battled depression for many years and refused to seek professional help for it and would not take medication. A year prior to his disappearance, Kenny had quit his job to start his own interior design business. But unfortunately, this venture was unsuccessful, and after a year of not working, he was running out of money. It became more obvious to those close to Kenny that he was very depressed, particularly around the same time he had made the now infamous M-Cave hike video. If he was indeed battling depression, his love of the desert must have helped mask his internal struggles, because he genuinely appears to be happy for the duration of that adventure. In the aftermath of Kenny's disappearance, it was learned that Kenny's father had committed suicide when Kenny was in his 20s. Sharon would also indicate in her post that Kenny had been very candid about suicide, saying in part, 
that if he ever did decide to end his life, no one would ever find him. Sharon would go into further detail about the search for Kenny in her post, indicating that his car was found in the very spot she told authorities to look for it, and that she believed he intentionally left his cell phone at the abandoned mine so that he could not be GPS-tracked. On his last hike into the desert, he left his video camera at home, so if Kenny did go back out to find the M-Cave, he had no intention of filming it. In the years since Kenny Veach disappeared, hundreds, if not thousands of hikers have ventured into that same stretch of desert in search of him and the mysterious M-Cave. Many of these adventures have been uploaded to YouTube. Some even claim to have discovered the cave. No matter what we want to believe as to the fate of Kenny Veach, whether he took his own life disappeared intentionally, or fell victim to misadventure. He did so in the desert, a place he loved that was far away from the stress of everyday life. The place he had hiked, camped, and explored countless times for enjoyment. And a place he will likely be a part of forever. Our second strange case takes us back over 400 years to early America. It's a story of the lost colony and the disappearance of the Roanoke settlement. The date is May 8th, 1587. Under orders of Queen Elizabeth and recruited by Sir Walter Raleigh, John White is sent to the New World to re-establish a colony on the island of Roanoke. It would be the second attempt by the English to establish permanence there, after the first such attempt had been abandoned due to a lack of supplies and poor relations with the indigenous. John White's crew numbered over a hundred men, women, and children. Among those was John White's daughter, Eleanor Dare, and her husband, the couple was expecting a child, a child who would become the first English born in the New World. They arrived on Roanoke in early August and immediately began fortification repairs on the ruins of the prior settlement. Weary from rough seas, but determined by Sir Walter Raleigh's orders and ambition to ensure the settlement's success, John White remained on Roanoke, overseeing the resettlement, during which Eleanor gave birth to a baby girl she would name Virginia. It was during this time that John White, who was an accomplished artist, 
detailed the new world in illustrations and paintings, recording the land and wildlife and the people of the indigenous tribes. On August 25th, with most of the fortification repairs complete, it is decided that John White would leave Roanoke and return to England, with a promise to return to Roanoke by the following spring with much-needed supplies. As John White prepared to depart Roanoke that day, he reiterated his promise to return, ensuring his daughter Eleanor that he would see her and his new granddaughter in the spring. He gave them a final wave as he sailed away, watching the island shrink in the growing distance until it vanished into the horizon, not knowing that was the last time he would ever see his daughter, his granddaughter, or any of his people again. John White's plan to return to Roanoke was interrupted by the Anglo-Spanish War, the duration of which would delay his return to the island for three years. In August of 1590, John White finally returned to Roanoke, but when his expedition came ashore, they found the settlement abandoned with no trace of the 117 colonists or their homes anywhere. The only clues they did find was the word Croatan carved into one of the settlement's last remaining fence posts. Similarly, the letter C-R-O, or Crow, was carved into a nearby tree. White suspected that this was the colonists' way of informing future expeditions that they had left Roanoke for Croatan Island, which was 50 miles south and had known English allies within its native population. Upon a deeper search of the surroundings, White's men found five chests containing books and papers hidden in the woods. In his journal, White wrote the following. Many of the things inside the chest were spoiled and broken, the covers torn off books, the frames of some pictures ruined in the rain, and my armor almost eaten through with rust. But I took great joy in that I had found token of them being safe at Croton, where the savages of the land are our friends. White immediately made plans to travel to Croton Island, but unfortunately, he was traveling under the command of a different captain and in a privately owned vessel. He was able to persuade the captain to make two attempts to reach Croton. However, they were forced to abandon each of those attempts due to harsh weather and rough seas. John White reluctantly returned to England and passed away three years later, never knowing what happened to his daughter, granddaughter, or the people he left behind. Mm -hmm. 
Historians have suggested many theories as to the fate of the lost colony. One theory suggests that the settlement had been slaughtered by the local native tribes, likely associated with the first attempted settlement on Roanoke. That first settlement, led by Ralph Lane, had a shaky relationship with the local natives. Reportedly, this was exacerbated by a misunderstanding over a trade involving a silver cup. The native king, named Winjina, cut off supplying the colony with food. Ralph Lane, choosing brutality over diplomacy, beheaded Winjina, believing this would force future compliance of the native tribe. However, the act caused an uprising that forced the abandonment of the settlement. It is therefore theorized any English return to the island would likely result in bloodshed. But with no human remains, and no evidence the settlement had been overrun, that theory has been disputed and criticized. A recently released documentary suggests that the colonists left for Croatan Island with Manateo, a native Croatan who was a friend of the English and had once traveled to England with John White. It is said that over time the two cultures eventually integrated with each other. As proof of this, the documentary cites an unconfirmed report from the year 1733, in which an English traveler came across a mainland Croatan tribe, some of whom were described as dark-skinned with blonde hair, and others having blue eyes, speaking English and practicing Christianity. However, there are no confirmed reports of such a tribe ever existing. Despite future successful settlements by England in nearby Virginia, the English made no attempts to locate or investigate the disappearance of the lost colony. Only historians cared to guess or research what may have happened to them. In 1937, FDR traveled to Roanoke and presented a birth certificate for Virginia Dare to the Roanoke community officially naming her the first English citizen born in America. FDR personally designed a commemorative stamp in her honor, and in addition, a statue was erected depicting Virginia Dare as a young woman. Every summer, there is a play on Roanoke Island that celebrates the lost colony, but leaves their fate a mystery. Leaving that to the historians, who continued geological digs and anthropology studies on the outer banks of North Carolina, hoping to one day solve the mystery of what happened to the lost colony. Our next story takes place in the skies above Australia, where a young pilot vanished after reporting a strange object following his small single-prop Cessna airplane. On the evening of October 21, 1978, a 20-year-old pilot named Frederick Valentich had plotted a 130-mile flight plan 
from Moorabin Airport, south of Melbourne, Australia, to Kings Island, informing flight officials he was headed there to pick up friends. He took off in his rented Cessna 182 at 6.19pm, flying above the Bass Strait. The skies were reportedly clear with calm winds. It should have been a routine and uneventful flight, but at 7.06pm, a nervous Frederick radioed Melbourne Air Traffic Control to report an encounter he was having with an unusual object that was hovering and circling his aircraft. The following is Frederick's actual radio transmission with Melbourne Air Traffic Control. This is Delta Sierra Juliet. Is there any known traffic below 5,000 feet? No known traffic. Seems to be a large aircraft below 5,000 feet. What type of aircraft is it? I cannot confirm. It's four bright, seems to me like landing lights. The aircraft has just passed over me at at least a thousand feet above. Is there any Air Force aircraft in the vicinity? No known aircraft in the vicinity. Seems to be playing some sort of game. He's flying over me. Delta Sierra Juliet, it's not an aircraft. It's... Can you describe the, uh, the aircraft? As it's flying past, it's a long shape. Cannot identify it. It has such speed. It's before me right now, Melbourne. How large would the um, the object be? Seems like it's stationary. What it's doing right now is orbiting. The thing is just orbiting on top of me. It's also got a green light and a sort of metallic-like. It's shiny on the outside. It's just vanished. That strange aircraft's hovering on top of me again. It's hovering and it's not an aircraft. At the end of that transmission, the air traffic controller reported that he had heard several clicking noises, and then nothing more. Frederick Valentik has not been seen or heard from since. Over the next month, extensive searches of the Bass Strait waters between Cape Otway and King Island were performed, but no traces of Frederick or the Cessna aircraft were found. In the aftermath of Frederick's disappearance, several witnesses came forward. One such individual, who asked to remain anonymous, claimed he and his family had witnessed unusual activity in the skies over the Bass Strait, saying they had witnessed a lime-green light flying above a small airplane. They watched this for several minutes until both disappeared from their line of sight. Six weeks later, an amateur photographer named Roy Manifold came forward with a series of photographs he had taken of the sunset off Cape Otway the same evening Frederick vanished. The last of his pictures appeared to show a dark object in the sky over Cape Otway. Roy Manifold admitted that he had not seen the object when he took the photos and agreed to provide them to a leading photo lab in Australia for review. That lab determined that the photo was in fact of an object taken with the camera and not added in after the fact. However, a computer analysis performed in the United States determined that the object was likely part of a developing error. There are, of course, many theories as to what happened to Frederick Valentik that fateful night in 1978. Some of the more skeptical researchers believe pilot error and disorientation caused Frederick to incidentally stall the plane 
and crash into the waters of the Bass Strait. Ufologists dispute this theory as a desperate attempt to dismiss this incident as something less significant than an extraterrestrial encounter. To support their theories, skeptics point to Frederick's spotty flight record. That he had been rejected twice for enlistment in the Royal Australian Air Force due to an inadequate education. That he had also twice failed to pass his commercial license exam. Frederick had also been warned several times for flying incidents, one of which he had deliberately flown into cloud cover twice, despite warnings not to do so. On top of this, Frederick's father, Guido, told investigators that Frederick had an unhealthy obsession with UFOs and had even expressed a fear of being attacked by them. In 1983, an engine Kawa flap for a Cessna 182 was found on the shoreline of Flinders Island, which is over 200 miles away from King Island. Both islands are located in the Bass Strait. Reports vary on whether the serial numbers on the cowl match those of Frederick Cessna. Most reports indicate it was a partial match, since most of the sequence was missing. Ufologists appeared to have gotten a boost to their theory on August 9, 2014, when the Herald Sun published a story about a farmer who is not named who had reportedly come forward the day after Frederick vanished. This individual said he had seen a Cessna aircraft stuck to the side of a large object hovering over his property, near Adelaide, which is 450 miles northwest of Melbourne. The farmer reportedly stated the Cessna was leaking oil and he could clearly see the plane's registration number. Because he had nothing to write on, he scratched the registration onto his tractor. Due to ridicule he received at the time, he did not come forward again. To date, that farmer, or any proof that he even exists, remains unknown. The disappearance of Frederick Valetic remains a mystery. No wreckage or remains have been located that is definitively linked to this case. Frederick's father passed away in 2000, not ever knowing what became of his son. Ufologists will continue to say this case is proof of the existence of extraterrestrial visitation to our planet, while skeptics will continue to disqualify this by bringing up Frederick's spotty flight record and providing rational explanations for how he disappeared. In December of 1998, a plaque commemorating Frederick was placed on the coast of Cape Otway, near where his plane diverted south for Kings Island. The plaque is titled The Unknown and describes the events that led to his disappearance, which will likely remain a mystery forever. And while there are so many strange mysteries to be written and talked about, that concludes this episode. They disappeared.
Thank you again for listening to this episode of They Disappeared. Going forward, I may use this space for additional content to answer your questions and talk about the cases, off the cuff and unscripted. So if you have questions on the cases covered here, you can send them to they disappeared in all capital letters at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.